Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Verses 9 through 14. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive, and had been seen of her, believed not. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them, as they walked, and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterwards he appeared unto the eleven, as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Burkett notes, An account is here given of a threefold appearance of Christ after his resurrection. 1. To Mary Magdalene, not to the Virgin Mary. And it's observable that our blessed Savior, after his resurrection, first appeared to Mary Magdalene, a grievous sinner, for the comfort of all true penitents. Mary goes immediately to the disciples, whom she finds weeping and mourning, and tells them she had seen the Lord, but they believed her not. The second appearance was to the two disciples going into the country, that is, into the village of Emmaus. As they were in the way, Jesus joined himself to their company, but their eyes were holden by the power of God that they did not discern him in his own proper shape, but apprehended him to be another person whom they conversed with. His third appearance was to the eleven as they sat at meat, whom he abrades with their unbelief, and to convince them effectually that he was risen from the dead, he eats with them a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. Not that he needed it, being he was now become immortal but as to assure them that he still had the same body. From the whole, note how industriously our Lord endeavors to confirm his disciples' faith in the doctrine of his resurrection. So slack and backwards were they to believe that the Messiah was risen from the dead again, that all the predictions of Scripture, all the assurances they had received from our Savior's mouth, yea, all the appearances of our Savior to them after he was actually risen from the dead, were little enough to confirm and establish them in the certain belief that he was risen from the dead. Verse 15. And he saith unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Burkett notes, Here our Savior gives commission to his disciples to congregate and gather a Christian church out of all nations to go forth and preach the gospel to every creature, that is, to all reasonable creatures that are capable of it, not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles also, without any distinction of country, age, or sex whatsoever. Learn hence that the apostles and first planters of the gospel had a commission from Christ to go amongst the pagan Gentiles, without limitation or distinction, to instruct them in the saving mysteries of the gospel. The second branch of their commission was to baptize, where observe the encouraging promise made by Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That is, he that receiveth and embraceth the gospel preached by you, and thereupon becomes a proselyte and disciple of Christ, and receives baptism, the seal of the new covenant, shall, for all former sins, receive pardon, and upon his perseverance obtain eternal life. But he that stands out obstinately and impenitently, shall certainly be damned. The two damning sins under the gospel are infidelity and hypocrisy. 
not receiving Christ for their Lord and Savior by some, or doing this faintedly by others. Happy are they in whom the preaching of the gospel produces such a faith as is the parent and principle of obedience. He that so believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Accordingly, some paraphrase the words thus, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That is, he shall, by virtue of the faith in baptism, be put into a state of salvation, so that if he continue in that faith and do not willfully recede from his baptismal covenant, he shall actually be saved. Note farther that they who hence conclude that infants are not capable of baptism because they cannot believe must also hence conclude that they cannot be saved because they cannot believe. For faith is more expressly required to salvation than baptism. Note lastly, that though it be said, He that believeth and is baptized, the same shall be saved. It is not said, He that is not baptized shall be damned, because it is not the want, but the contempt of baptism that damns. Otherwise, infants might be damned for their parents' negligence. Verses 17 and 18. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Burkett notes, Here we have a gracious promise in Christ that in order to the spreading and propagating the gospel, as far as may be, the Spirit should be poured forth abundantly from on high upon the apostles, and thereby they should be enabled to work miracles, to cast out devils, to speak strange languages, which we read they did, Acts 2. And this power of working miracles continued in the church a hundred years after Christ's ascension, until Christianity had taken roots in the hearts of men. Arrhenius, Lib. Book 2, 50-58, says that many believers, besides the apostles, had this power of working miracles. As new-set plants are watered at first till they have taken fast rooting, so that the Christian's faith might grow the faster, God watered it with miracles at its first plantation. Yet observe that all the miracles they had the power to work were healing and beneficent, not terrifying judgments, but acts of kindness and mercy. It was our Savior's design to bring over persons to Christianity by lenity, mildness, and gentleness, not to affright them into a compliance with astonishing judgments which might affect their fear, but little influence their faith. For the will and consent of persons to the principle of any religion, especially the Christian, is like a royal fort which must not be stormed by violence, but taken by surrender. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Burkett notes, Here we have that grand article of our Christian faith asserted, namely, our Savior's ascension into heaven, together with his exaltation there, expressed by his sitting at God's right hand. He ascended now to heaven in his human nature, for in his divine nature he was there already, as it was necessary that he should thus ascend in order to his own personal exaltation and glorification. When he was on earth, his humility, patience, and self-denial were exercised by undergoing God's wrath, the devil's rage, and man's cruelty. Now he goes to heaven that they may be rewarded. He that is a patient sufferer upon earth shall be a triumphant conqueror in heaven. 
Also, with respect to his church on earth, it was needful and necessary that our Lord should ascend up into heaven, namely, to send down the Holy Spirit upon his apostles, which he did at the Feast of Pentecost. If I do not go away, says Christ, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And likewise, to be a powerful advocate and intercessor with his Father in heaven on behalf of his church and children here upon earth. Hebrews 9.24 Christ has entered into heaven itself, there to appear in the presence of God for us. Finally, Christ ascended into heaven to give us an assurance that in due time we should ascend after him. John 14.2 I go to prepare a place for you. Hence the apostles call our Savior our forerunner. Hebrews 6.19 Now if Christ in the ascension was a forerunner, then there are some to follow after. To the same purpose is that expression of the Apostle Ephesians 2, 6. He hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. That is, we are already sat down in him, and ere long shall sit down by him. We are already sat down in him as our head, and shall thereafter sit down by him as his members. The only way to this, namely, to ascend unto and sit down with Christ in heaven, is to live like him and to live unto him here on earth. If any man love me, he will follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. St. John twelve twenty six, verse 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the words with signs following. Amen. Burkett notes, Observe here, first, the general publication of the gospel by the apostles. They went forth and preached everywhere. Secondly, the reason of the efficacy and success of it, namely, that divine and miraculous power which accompanied the preaching of it. The Lord wrought with them and confirmed the word with signs following. Observe one, the general publication of the gospel by the apostles. They went forth and preached everywhere. The industry of the holy apostles was incredibly great, yet was their success greater than their industry even beyond all human expectation, which will evidently appear if we consider, one, the vast spreading of the gospel so far and so short a space of time. For in thirty years' time after Christ's death, it was spread through the greatest part of the Roman Empire and reached as far as Parthia and in India. Two, the wonderful power and efficacy which the gospel had upon the lives and manners of men. The generality of those that entertained the gospel were obedient to it, both in word and deed, because Christianity, being a hated and persecuted profession, no man could have any inducement to embrace it that did not resolve to practice it and live up unto it. 3. The weakness and meanness of the instruments that were employed in propagating the gospel shows the success of it to be very great and strange, a company of plain and illiterate men, most of them destitute of the advantages of education and unassisted by the countenance of any authority whatsoever, yet did they in a short space draw the world after them. The powerful opposition which was raised against the gospel, namely the prejudices of education, the power of indwelling lusts, and also the powers of the world then in being, did strongly combine against it. Yet did Christianity bear up against all this opposition and make its way through all the resistance that the lusts and prejudice of men, armed with the power and authority of the whole world, could make against it. 4. The great discouragements that men were then under to embrace the gospel and the Christian profession. 
All the evils of this world threaten them. Mockings and scourgings, banishments and imprisonment, reproach and ruin. Death in all its fearful shapes was presented to them to deter them from embracing this religion. Observe, therefore, too, the reason of this wonderful success. The Lord wrought it with them and confirmed the word with signs following. The Lord wrought with them. This points at the inward operation of the Holy Spirit upon the minds of men. Oh, it is sweet and prosperous, working in fellowship with Christ and his Holy Spirit. He directs his ministers. He assists them. He guides their lips, influences their minds, quickens their affections, sets home their instructions, and crowns all their endeavors with his blessing, and confirm the word with signs. That is, confirm their doctrine with miracles, such as healing diseases, raising the dead, casting out devils, inflicting corporal disease on scandalous persons, and sometimes death itself. From the whole we gather the truth and divinity of the Christian religion, that it was and is certainly of God, and therefore never could, never can be overthrown.